Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and Rick is a clinical psychologist and best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm actually doing really well while deep down inside, and this is something I'm eager to talk with Sharon about, is this profound feeling of unease. Mm. It's like surface okayness, you know, there is enough water, the groceries are here, underneath it all, whoa. Like the animal belly just feels like something is really shaky and wrong. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's an experience that a lot of people can probably empathize with these days. And as you said yourself, today we have the pleasure of welcoming one of the most prominent teachers of mindfulness in the West to the show, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon has been teaching meditation for over 45 years and is one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society, alongside Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. She's had a truly enormous influence on the spread of ideas related to Buddhism in the West, including mindfulness, meditation, and metta, or loving-kindness. She's also the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of the fantastic Meta Hour podcast. Her 11th book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, comes out September 1st. It is a wonderful book that teaches us how to embody the fundamental principles of mindfulness so that we might have the generosity, courage, and energy required to engage these challenging times and, hopefully, create a better world. So Sharon, it's great to have you here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. It's great to be here with you. So Sharon, I know you as a teacher, as a friend, and as someone I admire enormously for your sustained contributions uh, to the planet, uh, beginning way back when, when you were, uh, what were you, 19 or something when you went off to India? And I was 18. Yeah. 18, there you go. Uh, and someone who's just really had an incredible uh, career uh, of contribution socially. So you have a deep personal practice, and this is a challenging time for everyone. I kind of wonder if we could start with you just talking a bit about how this time has been for you, and what one or two things in particular, maybe, have you found yourself drawing upon in your own practice that's been helpful for you? Well, for a long time now, when I'm not traveling and on the road, I've been dividing my time between Barry, Massachusetts. Next, I have a house next door to the Insight Meditation Society and New York City, where I have a, a rented apartment, a small rented apartment. And I spent the month of February, the entire month in California. I flew back to New York in early March. I taught two really large events, one with Krishnadas, uh, which means singing, in an enclosed room with 200 people. You know, and the only guidance we had at that time was like, don't shake hands or hmm. use hand sanitizer. You know, so I left Kripalu, went back to New York, and I just started thinking, this doesn't feel good. You know, I'm not, generally speaking, an anxious person. I could just feel anxiety filling my body. And yeah. I thought, this does not feel good. And I have an alternative. I'm one of the lucky people who has an, another place to be. So I thought I was coming to Barry, Massachusetts for two weeks. I came up with my snow boots. <laughs> and I'm still here, of course. You know, In many ways, I'm very protected. I'm very safe. One of my kind of startling realizations early on was... I'm a senior citizen. It's like, 
never occurred to me. <laughs> I really, I never think of myself that way. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, who are the vulnerable people? Oh, right. I'm a senior citizen. I have asthma. Oh, right, right, right. You know, so I came up here before anything closed down. Uh, I rely on my practice a huge amount, even as I feel personally very protected. I did a, an interview uh, with Dan Harris very early on after I had gotten up here, and he said, well, aren't you anxious? And I said, no, I'm sad. So I felt like I got into that, you know, and then the grief sort of became more rampant. And now people say, aren't you, like, grieving? And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm more exhausted, you know, than anything. So it, it's it's different. I do rely on my practice tremendously, I think, in a few different ways. One is just the very simple exercise I first was taught in January 1971, like feel your breath, hmm. which basically in times like this, I think translates to remember to breathe. What do you mean by feel your breath? Feel the breath is actually feel the sensations of the breath. Okay. Sometimes people, um, sometimes people hear that in, an instruction about being aware of the breath and they think it means hearing the breath or getting an image of the breath, but it's actually feeling the sensations of coolness, warmth. Uh, if you're with the breath um, at the abdomen, it'd be stretching movement, something like that. And we don't try to name the sensations, but actually to feel them. And I think it, it's, it's two parts. One is remembering to breathe, which is big relief, you know, in times of incredible stress and freezing, you know, mm. and, and then also, it's a it's a time of rest, you know. So it's like taking a little bit of a step back from the onslaught of pressure and information and decision making, and you know. And it's just like, okay, I'm just going to rest. The breath as a time of rest, that's lovely. And then you know, my practice, my mindfulness practice, my mindfulness practice has really been like a skills training in terms of feelings and the sense of emotions, you know, as well as sensations in that I've spent a lot of time sitting with really painful feelings like fear and anger and uh, anguish and so many things through the years and being able to not freak out about that and add to the distress by uh, disliking it and thinking I should, you know, should have been in better control or whatever. And being able to feel it has really allowed me to have more compassion for myself and ultimately, of course, for others. And then also, and this is really, you know, uh, so much based on your work, like taking the joy, you know, mm. even in these miserable times, it's like, okay, you're going to get all the more exhausted and depleted and feel overcome. If you can't just like move your attention over a little bit, you know, Give a little airtime to what you have to be grateful for, something like that. Yeah. I think a lot about think is really the wrong word. I, I try to dwell in or shift my dwelling place, you know, and I'm nodding here to the viharas, as you know, the term in Pali, where we dwell mentally as well as physically. And anyway, what is also true? And it kind of is summarized for me in a simple way. Uh, as far as knows to a fault, I'm a to-do list kind of guy. You know, I got a three-point plan for everything, you know, in a four-by-seven matrix as well <laughs> for for the grocery store run. Anyway, but, um, <laughs> um, deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. 
And nice. Just, that's very nice. That's that's, that's kind of it again and again and again and again. And you know, and they and they feed each other, deal with the bad for real, and turn to what is also good, and take it in again and again. Yeah. And I'll tell you what else has been speaking of the Viharas, you know, very very pronounced for me in this time is is of course been loving kindness practice and yeah. and just that profound sense of connection. Like somebody sent me, I'm sure you've had this experience too. Somebody sent me a quote of me. From many years ago, you know, which is always an <laughs> odd moment, like, oh, what did I say, you know? And uh, for years, I've been saying that interconnection is the truth of things. It's not sentimental, it's not uh, saccharine, you know, and it is an extension, neither is loving kindness. But anyway, interconnection is not anything other than the truth. And it doesn't take a spiritual understanding to get there. Science shows us this, and economics shows us this. and Environmental consciousness certainly shows us this, and even epidemiology shows us this. So really, I've been saying this for years. And and uh, people used to say to me, why are you talking about epidemiology? I don't even know what that means, you know, or something. It's very funny. Uh, but here we are, right? Yeah. Like, what happens over there? Does it nicely stay over there? It seems to filter out <laughs> over here. And, and what we do, it matters, because it too will be consequential. Yeah. Hmm. That's beautiful. I, I think about how what makes us vulnerable to a plague is precisely our profoundly mm -hmm. social nature. Mountain lions don't have plagues. And it's because it's our sociality uh, that makes us vulnerable to this. It means that we must solve it in terms of the common good. We, we must solve this through relationship precisely because we're vulnerable to it through relatedness. I'm going to hand it off to Forrest at this point because you and I could just keep on going, Sharon. <laughs> so what occurred to me while you were saying this, Sharon, um, your point about interconnectedness is it was interesting where Rick went to um, coronavirus and all of the struggles that were going through there. The first thing that rose in my mind uh, when you spoke to that was the Black Lives Matter movement and the related protests against police brutality and systemic racism and the ways in which that too is kind of a demonstration of our interconnectedness. So your new book couldn't be more timely. The title Real Change, I think, resonates with a lot of people right now on a lot of different levels. And the first part of the book subtitle is Mindfulness to Heal, heal Ourselves, which I think for most of the people who are listening to this podcast is, is pretty intuitive at this point. We've talked a lot about the development of inner strengths and the way that mindfulness can be a refuge and and all of that wonderful stuff. But we've talked a bit less here about the way that mindfulness and related internal practices of different kinds can help us kind of mobilize as agents of change out in the world. And so I was wondering if we could kind of turn the lens in that direction and just ask you after that, what sort of inspired you toward that end? Well, this is the book I've wanted to write for years. You know, sometimes I've been approached by a publisher who said, how about this topic? We'd really like to hear from you on this topic. And if it resonated with me, I thought, oh, yeah. But this book and a few of my other books really came from deep within me. That was the source. And it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. I, I feel very engaged politically. Most people don't know that about me. And it comes out every few years when I go on some campaign, urging <laughs> people to vote, you know, please vote. It's not a partisan perspective, you know, I don't say... Uh, things about candidates, but I say, please vote. In my mind, um, voting is one example, is 
a perfect replication of the Buddha's comment on the innate worth, the innate dignity of everybody. And I think it is the perfect expression of that. And I think for me, voting is like a sacred act and, and people trying to deny the right to vote, you know, is such a profound violation in my mind of human dignity. Uh, you know, so every once in a while they pop up on the airwaves. <laughs> and, and interestingly enough, the first time uh, in recent years I've done that, uh, my assistant said to me, boy, you just lost a lot of followers and whatever it was, you know. And I said, yeah, well, what to do, you know. You might think the difference, and this isn't always true, but that year, you might think the difference between the candidates is only marginal, but a lot of people live in those margins. Mm, so beautiful. You know, it might seem like nothing to you, like an increase in minimum wage, you know, from seven to ten or fifteen dollars is everything to somebody else. So I said, You've got to vote for the people who live in those margins. I totally agree, but I've had the similar thing where people just it's like a category they don't want to hear from. But I your point is completely right. You're talking about participation and a sense of care and duty and responsibility to others to take the 10 minutes it takes to kind of sort of figure out where your stand is. And then in most places, just, you know, take another 10 minutes to mark up the form and put a stamp on it and put it in the mailbox. Boom, you voted. I wrote uh, the entire book, except for the new preface, uh, even before the pandemic, let alone the protests. So uh, the publication date was delayed from June 2nd to September 1st, and that gave me the chance to write the new preface. Um, and uh, But it was before the protest, so every once in a while I wake up in the morning thinking, is that book totally irrelevant now? <laughs> you know, like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, perhaps speaking to that, like what are some of those inner strengths, practices, processes, whatever it might be that somebody in one of those roles who is feeling depleted, whether it's a healthcare worker or it's an activist or it's, frankly, anyone else who right now is trying to enact some positive change in their life could uh, draw upon in order to do that. Yeah. First, I should also say that uh, I was talking to Bell Hooks one day in Kentucky and she was telling me she didn't like the the phrase or the term social action because she thought it was too limiting. It made made her anyway think of protests and marches and and we got into this conversation like what about art? Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. about other things that just like break apart our notion of what is and open a door into what could be. And so there's a lot in the book about creativity and artists and playwrights and there's a lot in the book about agency. You know, how do we not feel helpless? or just stay in the feeling of helplessness? How do we find agency to take even one step? And that might mean within your family, you know, like the the domain in which you are um, working toward change could be the world, you know, and it could be uh, any unit really. And uh, there's a chapter on moving from anger to courage. There's a chapter on moving from grief to resilience. There's a chapter on remembering to take in the joy. I feel really good about the kind of structure of the book. I, I did a funny loop, I think, because I, I worked on um, the, ch- the chapter on interconnection uh, is followed by a chapter on uh, looking at systemic change, because that I think is, is a 
whole separate, almost like a separate training. You know, it's like I know so many meditators um, who really deepen in compassion and good heartedness. People say to me probably thousands of times, I was walking down the street and somebody approached me for a dollar and it's always been my habit to give them a dollar. But it's the first time I ever looked this person in the eye and realized it was a human being. But what that person, that meditator may not ever do is say, well, what's the housing policy in the city? You know, why are so many people living on the street? Uh, Which is just a whole separate orientation toward assessment and evaluation and, and looking at systems. And, and so I, I had a whole section on that. Like, can we add that to our mindfulness in a way? And I talk about Rhonda McGee and her work and, you know, uh, ways of, of expanding. And then I loop around because the last chapter is on equanimity and it becomes very personal again and kind of like one-on-one transformations. And yeah, so it's, it's interesting, interesting book. I am hearing, in a way, three kind of sort of topics swirling around. One topic being the ways in which our personal practice and well-being is connected in larger ways with larger systems. And um, if we also care about individuals at the personal level, let's say, uh, it's important to think about how they are affected by large systemic forces if we if we are truly benevolent and compassionate and kind toward them. So there's that topic. In other words, engaged Buddhism, engaged X, engage something, engage, you know, outside your own little bubble. Second topic is how people who are really involved with that larger engagement and up against uh, stresses and struggles and getting depleted and worn out can draw upon inner practices of various kinds. And then there's a third topic that I want to get to a little later, uh, which is the ways in which through engagement in the wider world, we actually can serve our own personal well-being. So if we could just sort of zero in on the second of those three topics, I swore I'd have a list, right? You know, there I am. I got a list. Yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about number two. So in the background is this notion of engagement with the wider world and why that's a good thing, including through acts like voting and so forth. Uh, but if we could, I want to build on what Forrest was getting at there in terms of personal practices for people who are worn down, worn down by the daily grind of under COVID worn down by um, trying to help the world be a better place. What are things that you've seen that are really important that you talk about in your book that individuals can engage inside themselves, where they do have agency inside themselves, to protect their resilience and to protect their well-being? What are, what are some things they can do? And, and maybe even what have you seen distinguishes between people who are engaged who can fight the long fight and stay with it? versus those who burn out and so forth. What could people do inside themselves? I think there are any number of things, including remembering what they have done for themselves. You know, like when I I was part of this four-year program uh, at the Garrison Institute for Domestic Violence Shelter Workers, and we um, we would begin each sort of rotation, each new group, by asking people to do this sort of journaling exercise. Um, The first column is to describe the greatest stress in their work that could be in your life, but they were all working in the same field. So 
And sometimes that was very surprising for people because it wasn't even like the overwhelming suffering that they were trying to deal with. It was like bad communication with colleagues. So that was just an interesting beginning. And then in the second column, we said, what do you do to get a break? Mm. What do you do to lift your spirits? What do you do to get perspective on things? What do you do to not feel so burdened? And in four years, I think every single person wrote down, listen to music, mm. um, although all kinds of different music. Some people were very uh, grounded in a faith tradition. People would write down, I get out in nature. Um, sometimes they'd write down, I drink a lot. And then in the third column, we said, why don't you write, look at everything you wrote down in the second column, the things you do, the tools you have, and write down how you feel about that. And, you know, people would do this kind of reflection. And I swear this is a true story. Somebody had written down, I get out in nature. And their comment was, well, I haven't done it in like seven years. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like a nice idea, long abandoned. So that was like, oh, maybe I'll do that again. Or they wrote down, I drink a lot. And they were troubled by that. by having written that down, thought I want some other pathway. You know, I want to learn some new tools. And then, of course, we were offering uh, mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation and yoga and mindful movement. And so I think that's part of it is like understanding what you have used and that you have some resource. And then a lot of it is around rest and self-care and self-compassion because, I mean, some researchers don't actually call it compassion fatigue. They call it empathy fatigue. Mm, yeah because they see compassion as a more balanced state. That's interesting. And empathy is, you know, that I see that. I mean, that makes sense to me because it's also, in my mind, it's like a sequential process. It's like we need the empathy. And I think we see in today's world, a world that can be very cruel and cold without empathy. But even for these people, these people have a lot of empathy, but they're burning out for some other reason. And I think it's like you can have that empathy but just feel so overwhelmed, so tired, you can't deal. Or you can have that empathy and be frightened. You know, it's too much. And so you turn away. You can have that empathy. And uh, this is one therapist said to me, uh, he found himself blaming all his clients. Hmm. You know, like they tell him a story and he thinks, I told you what to do six months ago. You know, <laughs> you're not, you should have listened. Or you can have that empathy and then have that weird savior thing. Mm -hmm. Like I am going to be the one who's yeah. going to seize control over this, who's going to fix you. and Or you can have that empathy and then have compassion as a response, Yeah, which implies compassion for yourself as well as for someone else. It, in the Buddhist description or definition, it would be moving toward to see if you can be of help, not moving into to burn up yourself. So that implies some equanimity as well, you know, understanding there may be limits, there may be mysteries, you know, not everything we do has an immediate result. It doesn't mm. mean it's not worth doing, you know. Mm. So um, I think the the tools that I've used and that I have tried to present in these situations have all those elements, you know. How do you have tremendous empathy and also compassion for yourself? And how do you have a sense of boundaries? And how do you have some balance and so on. I think of compassion simply as empathy plus warm-heartedness. Mm -hmm. And often 
warm-heartedness that moves into helpfulness of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, although sometimes we are um, empathic and warm-hearted about situations that we can't actually change, but at least we can bear witness. And that yeah, itself makes yeah, a difference. Yeah. And it makes me think as a psychologist about how uh, warm-heartedness is emotionally positive and it feeds us as it flows through us. So when you add the warm-heartedness element to empathy, you're less likely to get burned out by it. Yeah. To kind of continue with the line that you were saying a second ago there, Sharon, I had a friend say to me recently, uh, something to paraphrase, uh, I'm so incredibly tired of loss and grief, which I think really gets into what you're, what you're saying here. And there are many people who have done uh, various forms of compassionate, empathic work for a long time. And there are, I think, a lot of people who are, have been kind of thrust into that sort of work more recently, whether it's through necessity in their own life, dealing with COVID, or it's waking to the many injustices of the world in a variety of different ways, um, whatever it might be. These are issues that have existed for a long time, but that doesn't mean that everyone was kind of fully engaged with them through that long period of time. So I think that experience of being kind of like psycho-emotionally worn down is a very, very uh, common one these days. And you said something a second ago, that idea of moving towards something without moving into it. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed like a really wonderful distinction. And I was wondering if you could share more about sort of how you do that and how people can do that. Because I think that right now, a lot of people feel very into things without necessarily being toward them. Sure. Well, I, mean, I think that I've been helped when I've understood my own or some other people's kind of traumatic responses as really grieving. You know, I also tell the story in the book about working with this soldier who had just left active duty in Iraq, you know, like two weeks before he came to IMS, which was not on the recommended list really, but, you know, <laughs> uh, for what to do when you're like yeah. just out of, you know, the service and you're massively stressed and, uh, to go into an intensive silent retreat, but we had been pen pals when he was serving and, and uh, he just showed up. And so we didn't have him do an intensive silent retreat, but we had him do kind of a parallel thing. And uh, the, the teacher of that course that was ongoing when he came was Rodney Smith, one of my colleagues who'd begun and run two different hospices. And at one point, I was talking about the soldier, and Rodney said to me, don't you realize he's grieving? You know, like he entered the service with a certain set of ideals, and they were shattered. And, uh, and that somehow put it in perspective for me. It's like, oh, you know, there's so much loss, even when you haven't lost a person. And now, you know, there's so much loss, even if you haven't lost a person, and people are losing people. And someone that I quoted in the book, I can't remember exactly who it was, said something like, grief is love that doesn't have the normal place to go. Hmm. And that has helped me a lot, you know, because I actually look for the love when I'm feeling, you know, the sense of grief. I say, okay, where's the love? And I realize, yeah, that person is gone, my apartment or my life in New York or my uh, certainty about certain things, you know, uh, in this country, for example. And, um, but the love is still something very precious and intact. I guess another way of saying it is I always these days look for what's intact. 
like what's still whole? Like that was the whole premise of that preface that I got the chance to write. I just kept asking myself, what's still true? Like what is still true in the midst of all of this? What's still true? And maybe we don't pay enough attention to that, you know, to to have a, a different sense of perspective. And then I think of that, the thing about moving toward, um, which is one of the definitions of compassion, um, it is very distinct from moving into to be overwhelmed. And I, I understand there's some research uh, about empathy, um, which says uh, that if you over-identify with the person or, or people that uh, you're concerned about, if you over-identify with them, then empathy doesn't become compassion, it becomes empathic distress. And the irony of that is that, once again, our own feelings are taking center stage. It's like, forget the other person. Like, I feel mm. bad, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with this. And, you know, so we don't really want to keep cultivating that. I think that's a fantastic point. And I, I've been having a lot of conversations casually with friends. And uh, I think that that point about whose emotions are you centering is a really, really interesting one for for starters, for a lot of racial justice issues. And then secondarily, just this question of compassion. Like, am I truly feeling empathically for the other person or have I fallen into my own distress? And I think that that's a beautiful distinction that you're making there. Just to build on what you said there for us, really nuanced about if we over-identify. So then it, it becomes really a question of balance, right? Uh, where, uh-huh. like me, you too, right, uh, get headaches. Like me, you too get thirsty. Or like me, you too one day will die. And so we, on the one hand, that sense of like me, common humanity, can draw us into compassion and support for other people. And yet if it goes too far, the boundaries start to get very, very blurry, and then we become exhausted and overwhelmed, and we can't find our own footing on the basis of which then we can sustain compassion for the long haul. So, yeah, what a... What a balance. Yeah, well, balance is the whole thing. And it's such a boring word. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you're trying to ride a bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Or or climb El Capitan and not fall off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in my mind, balance always used to mean mediocrity, you know. Who wants that, you know? Yeah. But, of course, it's everything. For people who are just working hard, weary, helping, and so forth. One, one question is, how can we do inner practice that enables us to keep sustaining our efforts for the greater good? I was starting to think about flow going the other way as well. And how, so therefore, how can we draw upon our efforts to help the world be better, I'm going to use that kind of straight-up language, better. Uh, feeding kids is better than not feeding kids. Improving housing policies to reduce homelessness or unhousedness is better than not. Okay, good, better. Um, how can we draw upon our efforts to make the world and help the world become a better place in a way that fulfills us individually too, that touches our heart, buoys us, inspires us, gives us reasons to keep on living? Yeah, I think it has something to do with intention, maybe, uh, or motivation, because it also, like, generosity, and again, in the Buddhist tradition, of course, can come from a lot of different motives, 
you know, we could give a freely given gift. We could give someone a gift because we see they have an object we want. And we think, hey, you know, if I give you this, maybe you'll give me that. Or maybe we're giving them some complicated thing they'll never be able to figure out to how to use. And we hate them. And we, hey, here's a gift, you know. <laughs> and so it, on the surface, it all looks the same. But uh, the intention is very different. Loving kindness is considered like generosity of the spirit. Compassion is considered like generosity of the spirit. There may not be a material exchange, but we're giving of our time, our energy, our uh, appreciation. Maybe we're thanking somebody or paying attention to them, even though maybe we would have found them maybe a little boring in more conventional terms, but we're really giving our presence. Um, and that an extension of that is our work in the world or our service in the world. And, uh, the best kind of generosity is said to come from a sense of inner abundance mm. or at least inner sufficiency. You know, so it's not obligation. It's not constraint. It's not because the eyes of the world are on me, but it's almost like that flow of um, having a certain worldview, having a certain sense of, of inner sufficiency. And the thing about the practice of generosity, material generosity, is that when it's done in the right way and you pay attention, it returns you to that sense of inner abundance. Because you see, oh, I'm not, I don't have less actually having given this away. Uh, you know, I'm not deficient now. Uh, and, and I think it's the same thing with those actions. But part of what we need is that attention and part of what supplies that is a community, you know, so that you don't have the feeling you're acting alone and you're wrestling with all these things all alone. And, uh, and that, gives you the opportunity to kind of see, oh, yeah, you know, just that sense of connection, that sense of caring. You're not, like, strategizing. Um, am I better than this person? What's my status? What's their status? You know, like, uh, and you can just be with somebody in that, even if you're not physically with them, you know, in, in that sense of connection uh, is a very fulfilling way to live. So I had another funny experience after um, writing the book because I was reading one of the guided meditations aloud as being recorded for this journal. And uh, the journalist had chosen a loving kindness meditation toward a neutral person, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. So in that, in loving kindness meditation, we silently repeat certain phrases like may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And we go through a category of beings that we're making that offering to ourselves, someone who's helped us, and kind of down the list till we get to a neutral person, the kind of person we usually are indifferent to. We don't especially like them or dislike them. We look right through them. We discount them, whatever. And uh, we're urged to choose someone that we are likely going to run into now and then. Because you may not feel any great difference in your formal meditation, but the next time you see them, there's something happening. Mm. You know, you don't feel so cut off. You feel like you're actually connected. So for 45 years or something, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the supermarket, that's the perfect person. We don't care about them. We're indifferent to them. We objectify them. We, we discount them. And so I'm reading this out loud. And I think, whoops, look at that, you know, yeah. look at how we normally are. And look at, now we call them essential workers. Now we think they're risking their lives so we can eat. 
you know, and and so um, that reforging of our worldview and that sense of inclusivity is actually a very fulfilling state, much more so than the kind of chronic loneliness and alienation and fear that we usually can walk around in. So speaking to that, Sharon, how do you, what do you do to feel more connected to people you don't feel particularly attached to? Maybe even moving from a neutral person to somebody who you're like, eh, I don't know about that person so much. Yeah, well, this is a very uh, thorny topic, like loving kindness for a difficult person, compassion for a difficult person, which I think is actually more accessible. Yeah. I mean, I think it takes enormous um, understanding of just what we mean. You know, we, if if you mean giving in and being complacent, it's not worth cultivating. <laughs> You know, uh, they say the Buddha taught loving kindness meditation as the antidote to fear. I think about that a lot. Mm. It's kind of worth cultivating. And I really do believe we can be strong and we can be decisive. We can be forceful in our actions and not come from a place of hate. So it's out of compassion for ourselves that we sort of see if we can find our way. I know it's tough. Uh, I wrote a book prior to this called Real Love. and when I was describing to a friend this chapter on loving, you know, difficult people uh, and what that meant to me. And, and she said, you mean like Stalin? I have to love Stalin. And I thought at the time, who cares about Stalin? That's a like <laughs> pretty old fashioned kind of enemy to have, you know, like in this day and age, it was just like three years, four years ago, you know? So I think, it's worth doing that investigation. What does it mean to be strong? And also not just obsessed with hatred because who is being damaged in the end? And that was, you know, I hear that so many times from students, like, I can't stand my own mind anymore. You know, I can't stand the degree of anger that I'm just in all the time. I'm struck often by the refuge of sincerity. What I mean by that is that, you know, it can feel, you know, the, do you know the starfish parable? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's classic. Two people walking down a long beach. Millions of starfish have been cast up by the storm and the tide. They're dying in the sun. As they walk, one of them reaches down every step or two and casts one back into the ocean. And after half an hour of this, the other friend's irritated, bursts out. Why are you doing it? It doesn't make any difference. There's so many. And the friend who's returning them says, hey, it makes a world of difference. It makes everything different for the ones I throw back in. So there's, mm -hmm. I think it's important to, to focus on what we're actually doing and the way it does matter. The dishes we do each day, the smiles we give, the dollars we share, the, the votes we cast, not just at the ballot box, uh, with thought, word, and deed, countless times a day. Those are our actual votes and they matter. And also, we're simply making an offering. Who knows what their fruits will bear? We make the offering and then it's out of our hands, right? You cast that starfish back into the ocean. You cannot yeah. guarantee it a happy life. Uh, and then last, just taking refuge in the genuineness of your own good heart, your own sincerity. You actually do have good intentions. They're mixed up, sure, with other stuff. That's true for my mind stream. But still, there is a sincere thread that runs, that's a through line running through it. Uh, and for me, those are refuges that people can take comfort in and, and re find refueling in as well along the way. I found a really interesting question I ask myself and I urge people to ask themselves is how do I learn? 
you know, and I think one of the things that having a good intention, while not enough, uh, is that it provides an atmosphere where we're willing to learn, you know, and able to learn. Um, and it's very important that we keep learning, seeing more clearly. Like maybe the next time we go to the grocery store, we'll see that clerk differently. I also wanted to ask you, Sharon, prepping for this, Forrest and I were talking, and it just came to me to talk about the parami, the perfection in the Buddhist tradition, and the old-fashioned virtue of patience. Ah, patience just seems so relevant. And I, I think I've come to see, actually, that I'm fairly mellow and impatient. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so I, I went off. I left a retreat, uh, maybe honestly, probably about ten years ago. And you know, you like you go away sometimes, and you think, okay, what's the takeaway here? For me, the word patience just came to me. I needed to practice patience, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it it sounds like such a homespun virtue. It's like balance, patience, balance, <laughs> boring. But actually, it's really profound, and I, I just somehow I'm inspired to ask you how you are with patience, and also. Is there a weave of kindness and patience and how they flow together? I think there is. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I got to do for the book is have any number of activists interviewed so I could put in some of their stories and experiences. And I think that's actually a theme. You know, uh, I was just talking the other day to a friend who's in the book, Mark Solomon, who's uh, been a, a big, big advocate for marriage equality and more recently for the rights of um, former felons or felons in Florida to vote. And, mm. uh, and we were talking about the marriage equality movement and it was like 15 years of his work only, you know. And, uh, and he would say, you know, my goal was to put a, a win, even a very small win on the board every day. Mm. That might mean some new people having their minds opened or it might mean an editorial in some paper, or it might mean, you know, and I just thought, wow, that is patience, you know? Uh, and, and I think in the world of activism, you see it even more than in the worlds of contemplative practice, where it is still a very, very important quality, if you're going to succeed. Mm. You know, that's, that's how things actually work. Yes, I'm, well, I'm now I'm a senior citizen. I'm a lot more patient than I used to be, you know, really. It was like, much more head up in my youth, but and partly that is from being a teacher. You know, it's like I want to have 10 people in front of me leave fully enlightened, you know, and in an hour. Uh, but that, yeah, I have seen is not the way of things, you know, and sometimes people are full of doubt or they, you know, uh, and sometimes those very same people come back later and they say, you know, I thought. It wouldn't work for me or it was useless and just had this life change and I picked up the practice and, you know, it's really, it's helping me in this, in this period. And, and I think, you know, it would have been so easy to be kind of um, dismissive or impatient, mm, you know, right. in the earlier years, but it's like you just offer what you can offer and you see what people pick up. And I am very inspired by hearing from these activists you know you mm. think about uh it's like a long-term relationship when you <laughs> undertake a you know an effort like that 
So Sharon, maybe speaking to an extent about patience, because you've we've referenced during this conversation, like uh, your long history with this material at this point, going back to being 18, going to India, doing the whole thing. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child, a young adult, maybe the person going to India that day, or maybe long before then, um, what would you want to say to that person? It's going to be okay. It'll really be okay. That would have been enough. <laughs> it's funny. We we ask that question of just about everyone who comes on the podcast, and I think that that's the most common answer. Is it really? Yeah, which is really interesting if you think about it. it it's some version of people looking back and just telling themselves, don't worry, it's going to turn out all right. Yeah, well, that's optimistic, isn't it? You yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's a good view of the world. Yeah, I know. Why not? But I just think it's really interesting that that's such a such a common refrain and kind of a a a heartfelt commentary for people looking back over their life. Because of course, when we're young, and even now that we're old, and two out of three of us are senior citizens here, uh, (laughs) and I hope for you, Forrest, that you do become a senior citizen someday. One day, one day, I too. (laughs) Anyway. we're afraid it won't be okay. And in the moment, sometimes it doesn't feel okay. And I wish we could share with the world actually what what I saw in your face there, Sharon, when you said that to yourself, the, the reassurance of it, the sweetness of it. Just, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It was really touching. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It was a total pleasure. It was a total pleasure to be with you. And that this last conversation, I, I'm looking at Rick, because we can see each other, even though no one can see us. And I hear you in your childhood room. And uh, so I felt like saying to you back then, it's actually going to be okay. Look how well it turned mm. out. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely a reassurance I could have used uh, more than once or twice, I would say, growing up. So thank you for that, Sharon, and really thank you for doing this as well. Well, thank you. It's great to to see you both. So today we had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Sharon Salzberg. Her new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, was the focus of the conversation, and it comes out on September 1st. We started by asking Sharon how she's been dealing with the moment, and she had a wonderful line that I just want to highlight. It's, interconnection is the truth of things. And I think that that has so much applicability for so many of the issues that the world is going through right now, whether it be questions of racial justice or how we want to deal with this pandemic. Sharon shared some ways that mindfulness and meta practices can help us refuel ourselves and mobilize as agents of change out in the world. She also talked in response to a question that Rick asked about how these uh, practices can help people heal and nurture themselves personally. And from there, we moved into a question that I thought that Sharon answered truly beautifully, which is this question of how can we find that balance between being supportive of people, being helpful, being an agent aid to causes, while also not getting overwhelmed by what was happening around us. And she had this wonderful point about moving toward something without moving into it. And for me, that was something where when she said that, I went, wow, this is really clarifying to me and is really going to help me talk about these issues with people in the future. So I was really personally grateful for it. 
So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe through a platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, I'd like to remind you about our new sponsor for the podcast, BetterHelp. You can go to betterhelp.com slash beingwell to receive 10% off your first month. Also, we have a Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you'd like to support the show. It's one of the best ways to help us continue to do these episodes, and we really do appreciate it. So we'll have a new episode for you next week. Until then, thanks for listening.